Welcome to the next episode of the podcast on negotiation. And today we will tackle a very serious topic, um, the topic of um, why negotiations have failed in the case of the Russian-Ukraine conflict. And uh, together with me, I have an expert uh, with over two decades in education, research, conflict management, uh, um, who is based in Moscow, Russia, yeah, who has uh, seen the latest developments, uh, um, <clears throat> who, have wit who has witnessed the latest developments from an analyst perspective uh, based in the country, uh, who is a member of the program on negotiation, the process of international negotiation steering committee, a group, an international group dealing with uh, uh, international relations and conflict management, a very accomplished scholar, uh, Mikhail Trotsky. Mikhail, uh, thank you for being with us. Would you like to add anything to your introduction? Oh, I think, uh, you know, I'm, I'm proud of that introduction. And thank you very much, uh, Remy, for having me. You are very welcome. Great. Uh, we feel uh, very honored that you have uh, decided to join us. Uh, um, let us start with uh, from the beginning, as always, right? Uh, so, Mikhail, could you um, uh, could you share a little bit of a of a perspective on the genesis of this conflict, yes, between Russia and Ukraine? How did it all start? When did it all start? Uh, if you could give us uh, some background on this, I think that would set the scene very nicely. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, Remy, again, uh, and that is indeed an important question. But um, I also realize it uh, may now look irrelevant uh, because of the of the fighting, of the horrific circumstances that set in after February twenty fourth, and um, it is really difficult from a moral perspective to look uh, back beyond February twenty fourth, as many of your viewers uh, uh, surely feel and the loss of life and damage is, is hard to imagine. Uh, and at this time, I don't really see how we may be able to make it right uh, by everyone who has, um, who has suffered. Uh, and of course, as an international affairs analyst in this case, especially a Russian one, uh, and, and every international affairs analyst should probably have a nagging feeling of responsibility uh, for not being able to um, avert uh, February 24th, as well as, of course, later developments. Uh, and and uh, so what, what analysts could have done is a difficult question, and it depends on the concrete position or job, but likely not much from my perspective. Now, uh, after this preamble, um, if we can go back two decades or even one decade, uh, looking for the genesis, the, the question was uh, about uh, Ukraine's membership in, in economic blocks, really. And then it kind of evolved towards uh, prospective membership in, in NATO and also the specific policies by, uh, by the governments of, of Russia and Ukraine. So um, I, um, uh, back um, nine years ago, I co-authored a paper about what was called the integration dilemma. And it happens uh, when a country becomes insecure uh, because it seems to be losing the competition for members in the block that it leads. Okay, and, and, and that competition uh, in uh, its mild forms unfolded uh, a while ago, about 10 years ago, as Ukraine was negotiating its, uh, um, its association agreement with the European Union. And, uh, and that 
seem to me to be at the core of the controversy. And clearly, uh, Russia didn't want that to happen. Uh, and of course, that relatively mild controversy that we and my author back then argued uh, could have been resolved, that controversy was magnified and really overridden by Crimea and Donbass. And then later on, uh, I became really worried when I saw that the Minsk process stalled. Again, I'm not assigning the blame here, uh, but I'm just saying it wasn't working. It wasn't working out. And Moscow was becoming increasingly frustrated. And so I think was, was Kiev. Uh, but what ultimately happened uh, was in no way preordained. Uh, so there's, uh, we can talk about uh, gen Genesis writ large, uh, but uh, decisions to, you know, to start hostilities result from a unique dynamic, unique sequence of events. So I'm not sure I have, um, I have, um, and we, we, we can discuss it later. Uh, but at this point, I wouldn't just put it in my analysis of the genesis. So the genesis is longer term, and it was about blocks. It was about Ukraine's orientation and, and Russia's own uh, identity uh, uh, that was in large part shaped by Ukraine as, as the significant other. Uh, but other that, than those general terms, uh, I'm not sure uh, what I can say at this moment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Mihail, for for giving us um, a, a background to this uh, to this conflict. Uh, so, um, when we think about from a conflict a, a theoretical perspective, yes, uh, from a, a conflict resolution or conflict management perspective, uh, um, how would we define the interest? Was it all about security of uh, of the main stakeholders or the willingness to shift uh, the the point of the focal point of Ukraine from east to west? What is your in your in your opinion? What is the um, what are the interests of on, on both sides? What does Russia really want or expect? Yes, uh, uh, from it, uh, and uh, what are main Ukrainian interests? That's a very good question, uh, Remy. And um, I think the, the bottom line here is that post-February uh, 24th, interests seem to have been evolving. So as of now, Ukraine wants to return territory, and that is clearly opposed to what Russia is up to. Uh, but uh, other than that, the, the, the partners of both sides Uh, or their bottom lines uh, are, 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 are not clear. Uh, and I don't have a formula really to describe them, uh, and they evolve constantly. Uh, so the, the Russian leadership uh, talks about prevailing in the conflict with not just Ukraine, but also Ukraine's Western supporters, mainly NATO countries. And how such victory could look like, uh, it is, you know, hard to imagine, although you may think in different terms. Uh, so we can only uh, hope there will be more specificity uh, at a later stage in the evolution of the conflict when the sides really define uh, their their um, their positions uh, in uh, in a form that may become uh, at some point uh, compatible. But uh, what I'm saying is that the interests are constantly evolving and uh, that's how I see them for the moment. Uh, but I'm sure we'll see uh, plenty of change in the coming weeks for sure.
Mm -hmm. uh, thank you, Mihail. Um, I'm wondering. You know, I've been listening carefully to your uh, to your answer, and I'm uh, I was I, I was wondering, you know, about. Uh, um, it seems, you know, if we, if we look at the the two sets of interests, yeah, so reconcilable. Uh, it seems to uh, there seems to be so many possibilities yes to to resolve this conflict uh, before uh, before um, it escalated uh, and i even recently read a, a, an article uh, which you kindly forwarded to me uh, uh, that uh, resolution or so, resolution options were on the table yeah? so it must be about something more than just uh, than just you know uh, shift to the east, shift to the west. You know, being able to uh, uh, to uh, to um, uh, to demonstrate a particular role in the region, right? A leadership role in the region for uh, for Russia. Um, so the question is, you know, it seems on at least on the level of uh, of interest that we've just defined, so easily irreconcilable. So why did it erupt into a, a violent conflict? Well, yeah, the, the, I think uh, we can split this question into two parts. One is uh, long-term, and we uh, addressed it uh, at the beginning when we discussed the, the sources of controversy and, uh, um, well, uh, observers uh, may disagree, uh, but uh, it's just one side of the problem, the, the longer-term genesis of the controversy. But, of course, the most the exciting question uh, and the most important one, uh, at least for historians, uh, is uh, is the, the shorter term, the, the run-up to the actual start of the armed hostilities. And, and, and there we know, uh, so I, I am, um, uh, what I would uh, uh, do uh, trying to answer your question uh, using short-term uh, factors would be to see if we can do counterfactuals, if we can uh, uh, find just some um, relatively small developments, relatively small shifts or events that could have been averted, that could have be that could have gone differently, uh, so that uh, uh, you know February twenty fourth uh, wouldn't happen. So we, we know a number of things for fact if we are to believe reputed media. One is what you just mentioned, and it is that negotiation was ongoing at the level of very senior officials uh, between Russia and Ukraine. And Ukraine was apparently willing to concede neutrality at some point, uh, maybe already post-February 24th, and contours of such a deal was being discussed uh, in the days um, up in, in late February. But eventually, uh, eventually Russia didn't um, accept it. The story uh, has it. But what, what exactly was on the table uh how how what the offer from ukraine was at that time is 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 difficult to to know and that, that's that's one then it was clear at the same time that russia uh, it wasn't clear what russia would um consider a sufficient uh concession at that uh moment so the ask uh was very very big and unrealistic as a whole for sure but it was almost entirely um turned down almost entirely uh, rejected by um, Ukraine and and by uh, by NATO. Now, at the same time, Ukraine wasn't thinking uh, that military action by Russia was inevitable. 
Ukrainian officials didn't take the threat with all seriousness, so they may not have been prepared for significant concessions uh, just because they downplayed uh, the, the, the risk, downplayed Russia's resolve, apparently, in that situation. And the United States, uh, uh, or, or, or for their part, uh, saw military action as, as almost inevitable and was sending signals to Ukraine. And then European leaders were coming to Moscow, going back and forth, and were meeting with President Putin, but no commitment was made by either side. And finally, there was, of course, China, an important part of the picture that uh, signed a, a, a comprehensive partnership document with uh, Russia in uh, in mid-February that was widely seen as supportive of, of Russia's uh, position. And, and now, if I look at that picture... Uh, I try. I, I find it hard to find um, to, to to do counterfactual analysis. Uh, that is to figure out whether anything specific and reasonably feasible could have stopped uh, this, because you know the stated views was so much opposed, and it is not clear really if any um, say one or any two factors of what we just named and listed uh, uh, would have been a game changer. Uh, so immediate and quick backing down by both Ukraine and NATO was never seen as a realistic option. But whether there was a way to somehow jumpstart a process that would uh, push military action back in time is not clear. I think we just need more uh, more um, evidence, verifiable evidence. Uh, so they, they, there may have been a small window in March then when the Istanbul negotiations took place. Uh, although the side's bottom lines were difficult to figure out even then. Um, but then a number of events happened and, and trends uh, set in that uh, made the quick end game extremely difficult. And Russian public opinion seemed to be supportive. Ukraine's public opinion also turned towards overwhelming support for resistance. Mm, and the leading NATO countries pledged full support to Ukraine and even said their goal was to make sure uh, Russia loses and is significantly weakened. So at that point, I think uh, up until uh, today's major bout of, of escalation, there was little chance for, uh, for um, you know, for stopping this. Mm -hmm. Yes, I was thinking, you know, uh, as you as you were um, elaborating uh, elaborating on um, on uh, whether the conflict was avoidable and how could have uh, it could have been prevented, I was thinking the, the, all the time about uh, uh, you and uh, millions of Russians prior to uh, February twenty fourth. As uh, did you feel the tension uh, rising and growing in the society? How did you how did you see the um, the crescendo, or did you did you see that, or did you notice? Did you did you feel the crescendo as a as a conflict analyst, yes, an international expert, but also as a as a member of uh, of, of Russian society? Yes, how did you perceive the February twenty fourth? Well, throughout the fall and then winter, uh, the tension was um, clearly uh, growing and. Um, I took the Russian uh, draft treaties, uh, the ones uh, Russia proposed to sign with uh, the United States and then with NATO, and the rhetoric that accompanied those treaties as a very bad sign, uh, a, a bad sign of um, the lack of uh, agreement. And my bottom line 
Uh, here is that by mid-February, uh, such uh, processes uh, of discussing potential deals and, and negotiating were actually winding down from their climax uh, in sometime in June 2021, when the U.S. and Russian presidents met in Geneva. And I tend to agree uh, with... Um, with those observers, and it's of course not my um, uh, original uh, view. It has been widely discussed, and I agree with the uh, with the point of view, with the perspective that uh, uh, Russia and the United States uh, were finding themselves increasingly at odds since September 2021, and there are many uh, witness accounts, such as. Um, uh, CIA director William Burns uh, going to Moscow and then speaking uh, on the record later on describing his his findings uh, and and observations and and interestingly most um, th there were many observers in Russia who criticized uh, who had criticized the U.S. and NATO at that time for giving Russian demands a rather short shrift. Uh, for turning them down effectively, and 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 yet when the hostilities actually started, those observers said they were shocked. Uh, but if you think that the Western response to Russia's very serious demands was not, was not sufficient, why do you rule out direct confrontation? Uh, and anyway, if if there was a way to um, stop it in, uh, when it was in its early stages. Um, as Reuters reported much later, um, and then after those uh, early uh, early weeks, uh, again it became much much more um, intractable. Unfortunately, mm -hmm. I was um, I do remember um, uh, February twenty fourth uh, really really well, right? I mean all those uh, all those uh, uh, dramatic events that um, uh, that have happened in our. Uh, in our in the times of our life, like you know, I don't know, uh, uh, like 9/11, September 11th, uh, right? Uh, um, a cause that we remember everything else that has uh, surrounded it, right? Uh, many people also refer to uh, Kennedy's assassination as such a landmark uh, event in their lives, and they can very well remember for many many years. Uh, uh, what they were doing at the moment of finding out um, uh, that it had happened, yes. Um, and I also have uh, have this uh, this memory of uh, February twenty fourth and the vivid exchange of the steering committee members of uh, process of international negotiation, the PIN group, yes, uh, uh, to which steering committee you um, uh, you also belong. And I remember um, very well. Uh, the disappointment and disillusionment uh, expressed in the, uh, which I expressed also in the title of our of our today's episode. Yes, uh, why did negotiations fail? Uh, and uh, this question I would like to address to you. Uh, we always teach our students how to be successful in negotiation of various levels, interpersonal, organizational, or I don't know, sometimes political, diplomatic. Diplomatic. Now the question, uh, the question is, why in the case of Ukraine and Russia, where once we've discussed and described the interests of both parties, it seems at the first sight that the solution space is so huge. There are so many options. Uh, potentially, you know, how, to, how we could uh, consider legitimate interests of um, uh, each, uh, each party. Um, but why, why didn't we? Yeah, so we, we are coming back to that question that we um, discussed uh, a little bit earlier. And so I, I, I think I have to come up with some 
um, sticker explanation, uh, some some um, some simple um, explanation, kind of which which boils down to a, a, a memorable formula. And so my my short answer, given the time constraints, uh, would be that uh, uh, that uh, the, the dispute as such was focused on non-negotiable issues. Uh, that is one, and then. Secondly, the threshold between diplomacy and the use of force we, was mistakenly believed to be uh, too high, to be quite high. So when uh, when Pin uh, worked on an edited volume titled uh, Negotiating Security in Eurasia some five years ago, it came out, uh, we commissioned a chapter on the um, conceptual uh, foundations of security negotiations and we commissioned it from a world-renowned uh, scholar who did, uh, who had done by that time plenty of work on security. Uh, his chapter, unfortunately, never made it to the uh, edit volume, largely for technical reasons. But the point that author was making uh, was that security is generally non-negotiable because it is so important. Uh, it has such a high priority. And the problem uh, he was saying here is that security, you cannot really measure. It is not some end state uh, characterized by clear parameters. So if you are willing to split the difference, for example, as Fisher and Yuri has taught us, uh, then it becomes very difficult. You, you, you cannot really split the difference uh, when you try to reconcile positions of the negotiating, negotiating parties because security is, is so much in, in, is, is so difficult to, to measure. right? So where that middle is, for example, where a focal point is uh, for security writ large to be insured, isn't isn't clear whether you start fighting over security is a different question and that again takes us back to what we just discussed uh, uh, with regards to the actual start of uh, of uh, hostilities for which we really need more more evidence so again at the at the heat of this moment many would say this is not a sufficient explanation just some vague non-negotiability of security but we do have several accounts of the mindset uh, in, in Russia at that time, particularly one from William Burns and, and others. So it was clear uh, that the sides, and especially Russia, uh, were perceiving uh, uh, something that was going on as an extremely serious challenge, if, if not a threat, mm -hmm. as actually a threat. And, um, uh, and uh, actually, we now hear that in Ukraine as well, uh, there were very high-ranking officials and military officers who believed that armed, armed confrontation was uh, indeed uh, inevitable, uh, which is which is very interesting to to hear uh, now, given the um, the apparent disbelief uh, back in January and and early February. But we didn't we don't really know many details uh, of those uh, perceptions. We again need more um, evidence uh, to understand what kind of trends were seen as uh, as non-negotiable, uh, mm. say by the Russian side. There were a number of versions, you know, ranging from 
biological laboratories to to NATO's penetration of Ukraine somehow. Uh, but uh, I guess those assessments were classified uh, or were not elaborated upon. So we really need more um, information about the thinking at the at that very moment. Yeah, we have a we have a question from one of our uh, one of our listener and viewer. Um, do you think the UN could have prevented the conflict if the US and Russia weren't reaching a negotiated negotiated solution? And if yes, how? Yeah, well, the the UN uh, apparently wasn't uh, being successful as a mediator at that point. Um, what role for, for the UN at that moment, other than uh, just uh, uh, sending peacekeepers uh, somewhere, right, uh, to prevent the, the start of, of actual fighting. But I guess, uh, well, first the tensions were too high. Uh, and then second, uh, of course, the sides uh, would have uh, utterly disagreed as to where those peacekeepers should have been uh, injected. In, in, in broader terms, whether the UN as a negotiation platform uh, could have helped, I'm not sure, because uh, when tensions run uh, so high, uh, multilateral negotiation is, is particularly difficult to arrange, right? So you had Russia-China, you had Russia-US, and you had Russia-France, Russia-Germany tracks uh, all happening at the same time, but they were... Uh, separate, and there was no way to actually uh, to actually arrange for a multilateral meeting that would involve all those uh, all those mm -hmm. sides. Uh, so the most multilateral meeting involving Russia this far, I think, uh, actually, and discussing you know this whole uh, problem happened in in Samarkand. Uh, Uh, and there are different assessments of, of what uh, happened there. Uh, but other than that, I don't think any serious multilateral meeting uh, has so far tackled the, the, uh, the, the problem, the tragedy. And, uh, and so that's why I'm quite pessimistic about the role of the United Nations, uh, where I think the sides are still vying for support from among those who haven't yet defined their position. So it's a tug of war uh, rather than it's a place where a tug of war uh, occurs rather than a platform for the moment. Mm -hmm. That seems like it. Yes, uh, I, I know what you mean. Um, if we try to envision, you know, the next chapter, yes, uh, I must admit, I do struggle. Yeah, I do struggle, although uh, I, might, I would say I consider myself someone with a lot of fantasy. Uh, I do struggle imagining uh, how this conflict might look like in terms of the next chapter. Yeah? Uh, what is your what is your vision? What is your what is your prediction as a as a conflict scientist um, uh, who knows uh, who knows the country? Yes, uh, what do you think would be the next step in uh, the Russia Ukraine conflict? Okay, so again, I'm I'm trying to think in. Uh, um relatively general terms of negotiation uh, theory. And, and I, I think of uh, negotiation uh, uh, as, as first as this uh, collective problem solving, again, Fisher-Uri style. Okay, that's, that's the first option, the best one. Uh, and now there's no public information about uh, good faith negotiations 
going on on the main issues uh, that I would say are territory and, and ceasefire. And this is the type of negotiation uh, uh, that, uh, that, again, Fischer Yuri said real negotiation should look like, and that is certainly not going uh, on right now. But of course, negotiation may also be a process of probing the ground and just maintaining a channel of communication. And that may well be uh, ongoing. Uh, for example, with uh, regards to the rules of some future prospective negotiation, with regards to the issues that one considers um, auxiliary, secondary, uh, such as prisoner exchange, for example, um, right? Uh, and, and relatively non-committal talking uh, may be conducted informally at different uh, levels, like, you know, Mr. Abramovich uh, uh, appearing on board the plane that was involved in the exchange of, of prisoners. Uh, and um, that kind of business may be going on, uh, uh, even in order to map up future scenarios uh, which are not, contingent on the on the outcome on the near term outcome of the of the fighting uh, so but this far the conflict is uh, unfortunately headed towards more escalation uh, uh, but the roles may be switching uh, so my um, my takeaway is that uh, Russia has been turning towards deterrence it now says officially it is defending itself from encroachment but uh, at the same time, Russia is not suing for peace, um, right? And now the, the nuclear factor looms large, and it is indeed, and I think uh, our conversation would be a failure if we, if we didn't touch upon that, and it is indeed discussed everywhere uh, in Russia, Ukraine, and of course the, the world uh, media. So um, here I'm not uh, very pessimistic. Even the seemingly most hawkish of Russia's um, official speakers uh, suggest that decisions on the use of nuclear weapons are driven by Russia's known doctrinal uh, documents and statements that only talk about responding to WMD attacks and, and also fending off threats to Russia's survival as a state. Uh, and there's an influential school of thought uh, also, uh, and here I put on my uh, theorist hat, uh, um, the, an influential school of thought that says nuclear weapons uh, do not make much sense. That is because you either just commit a suicide if you use them massively, or you fail to impress your adversary if you use them in a limited way. And there's uh, also a line of thinking to the effect that, for example, that the, that that Japan uh, didn't surrender in 1945 uh, uh, because we didn't decide to surrender in 1945 in August 1945 because of the nuclear bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, but because of the fear of a Soviet landing operation that would have resulted in the presence of Soviet troops on the Japanese soil and much harsher terms of peace. So. Japan was was getting uh, a, a very uh, heavy battering uh, by by the Allies and the nuclear bombings back then wasn't uh, much uh, sort of it was it was horrific but uh, but conventional operations conventional bombs were as 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 bad as as as, as those as the nuclear ones uh, so it didn't impress Japan back then the story has it. 
uh, and um, yeah, and Russia is clearly interested in consolidating what it considers to be its territorial gains, but and it argues it is now in a deterrence mode, um, right? And theorists say that nuclear weapons are good for deterrence, even if they do not work for compellence. So you you cannot really uh, conquer territory relying on nuclear threats, but you may be able to hold on to what you have. Mm, and the problem uh, currently uh, is that you cannot really say who is compelling and who is deterring, uh, right? So uh, the sides may have their views as to what they are doing, but, uh, uh, but uh, I mean, history is being made right now. The, the question uh, is really when facts on the ground that you create become feds accompli. Um, right, so you think these effects on the ground, but whether they are feds are complete is a different question. Um, yeah, so um, uh, uh, so um, yeah, and, and another problem from my um, uh, personal perspective here is that a threat to be for, for a threat to be effective, you need to formulate clear terms of settlement and then make a credible threat of punishment in case um, the other side isn't willing to. Um, to oblige uh, to meet your demands and no visible negotiation problem at this time uh, seems to uh, seems to to show that there's no clear sort of vision uh, uh, and and signaling is also mixed it actually seems to be broken which worries me a lot uh, despite my general you know uh, not sort of giving up uh, yeah, so one may only hope that uh, scenarios to end the conflict are being mapped out through some informal um, channels. Um, right. And this is exactly the question I would, uh, we, we probably slowly, slowly need to come to an end, but this is exactly the question that I, I spontaneously uh, would, like to, uh, would like to add about uh, what is your prediction uh, in terms of, in terms of uh, the time to resolution? Yes, are we... Do we need to get ready for a long protracted conflict that will last for years? Yes, or do you believe we're approaching we're approaching a resolution yeah, one way or another? Yes, you've mentioned you're optimistic, but I would be would be interested to find out uh, uh, to find out more about your um, your predictions with respect to time to re uh, to resolution. Mm, well, I'm definitely not optimistic, and um, I think um, it's such an unrewarding task to. Uh, to try and, and guess the sort of the the um, the perspective, uh, the time perspective in this case, I think there are simply so many balls in the air that uh, might uh, either keep this going for a long time or may just somehow uh, bring it to a, a resolution uh, uh, quite fast. Uh, the only thing I know is that acute crises cannot last for, for a long time. So in an off and on mode, uh, this can unfortunately uh, go on. Uh, but uh, once it enters a certain uh, in intensity, once it becomes uh, intense, uh, then uh, uh, then, uh, unfortunately, uh, a resolution is, is, um, has to be forthcoming uh, in, in some way. So I would, I would just stop at that. I think, uh, again, uh, too many uh, factors, known unknowns as well as unknown unknowns, 
Uh, mm -hmm. Therefore, I will just um, um, demur from uh, mm -hmm. making predictions at that point. Although I'm, I'm indeed uh, very worried. Mm -hmm. I understand. Thank you so for sharing this. So, what have we learned so far? Yes, you mentioned this conflict is ongoing, as yes, uh, and um, events unravel as we speak. Yes, uh, uh, things uh, it's, it's, it, there are important events and announcements to be made, expected to be made within the next uh, within the next few days that can shape the intensity of this conflict. Yes, uh, and I was wondering, you know. As as a as a as a international relation or a conflict scholar, as uh, as um, you know, um, uh, a citizen of this world, Russian citizens, yes, what have we learned so far? Yes, what are, what are the lessons that we that we have already developed? Uh, things that we can tell our kids: Hey, when you are in our age, do it differently, do it better. Well, um, again, my takeaway is that things can get out of hand uh, quickly, uh, but equally uh, that choices are extremely hard and that juxtaposition of very hard choices with sides saying, well, we didn't and we still don't have any other choice but to prevail, uh, uh, juxtaposition of that on the, on the reality of things getting out of hand quickly uh, is, is is extremely dangerous because it uh, multiplies the um, yeah the, the damage it multiplies the, the havoc uh, and the the extent uh, of that multiplication uh, has has become has become clear during uh, this uh, conflict so I would I would say I I, I um, was uh, uh, reading opinions by analysts uh, back in the fall uh, last year uh, and uh, early winter uh, this year who were warning against uh, against you know things uh, getting out of hand and spinning out of control and something really really uh, bad um, starting and um, yeah unfortunately um, this this is a lesson to be learned in terms of what kind of predictions uh, can uh, finally uh, sort of bear out, uh, so to say, because of this magnifying force of these, uh, magnifying power of these two, uh, two factors that I mm -hmm. just mentioned. Yes, uh, thank you for sharing this. Uh, um, so la my last question is uh, always the same, yes, uh, to all to all, all my all, all my guests, uh, but uh, answered always with a different angle. I was wondering, um, when you think about great negotiators and yeah, personalities that we urgently need, not only for this conflict but all around the world, to uh, uh, to make uh, make better better decisions and help us, you know, better make better collective decisions and come closer together rather than. Uh, to reconcile rather than uh, than to fight is who comes uh, to your mind from your perspective as a conflict scholar? Um, in in terms of um, negotiating skills and uh, actual impact and actual difference, well, uh, I, I think um, well, Henry Kissinger is a safe choice uh, for sure. Uh, someone who uh, was able to um, reconcile uh, pursuit of uh, the U.S. national interest with uh, some ingenuity 
uh, in uh, in uh, actually uh, reducing tensions and in winding down some conflicts, be it um, U.S.-Soviet detente or the, the Middle East, a uh, number of Middle East crises. Uh, uh, so that that would be uh, a safe choice, uh, but also the way the the, the Russian and uh, the, the Soviet and uh, American leaders managed to um, uh, wind down tensions in foreign policy uh, uh, in the 1980s uh, was also impressive. These are all recent examples that we lived through, so they uh, naturally come uh, come to my mind. Uh, but uh, yeah, other examples like uh, Gustav Stresemann and some Soviet diplomats uh, like Georgi Chicherian, who uh, actually took Russia out of um, post-Bolshevik revolution isolation, uh, and then basically Stresemann did the same for for Germany uh, in uh, in the 1920s. Also, come to my mind as I uh, you know talk with my uh, students about successful uh, mediation and conflict resolutions. But then things get out of hand in 1930s. The 1930s was an example. So our uh, the, the lesson we may learn is that uh, even if things uh, go well on the uh, negotiation front, so to say, uh, there's a very small uh, dysfunction that needs to happen for things to um, actually become um, very, very ugly, and uh, and uh, uh, in need of of a new, uh, of new skillful uh, negotiators. Mihail, thank you so much for sharing your views, sharing your expertise with us uh, and our listeners uh, and viewers. Uh, um, let me summarize. Yes, negotiation. It does not cannot prevent all conflicts, but it's only negotiation can, that can end them. Yes, uh, uh, Mikhail, thank you so much for being with us. It's been great having you uh, on the podcast on negotiation. To all viewers and listeners out there, thank you so much. And until next time on the podcast on negotiation. Thank you. Thank you, Remy. My pleasure.